Welcome to episode two of the Heart Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we'll be unpacking the deep, multifaceted, and crucial elements of dialogue, particularly when engaging in community organizing and community building to dismantle systems of oppression. Guiding our conversation are two incredible friends and colleagues of mine from school who have also previously been guests on the show. Our first co-host, Truth Hunter, is a doctoral student in the Department of Educational Leadership at UConn. And our second co-host, Danielle De Rosa, is a clinical professor at UConn whose work focuses on community engagement, sports-based youth development, partnership development, among other areas. Joining us as a guest for our conversation is Dr. Sandra Quinones, a clinical associate professor who joined the NEAG School of Education at the University of Connecticut in August 2022. Her qualitative scholarship focuses on Latina teachers, family engagement, community schools, and teacher education. As the new director of school-university partnerships, Sandra will be working with schools and districts to continue building mutually beneficial partnerships intended to support educators grounded in equity and culturally sustaining practices. Sandra was born and raised in Puerto Rico, is bilingual and bicultural, and obtained her undergraduate and graduate degrees from the University of Rochester in New York. She has over 20 years of K-12 and higher education teaching experience in New York, Pennsylvania, and Puerto Rico. Also joining us is Robert Goodrich, a lifelong Waterbury resident and co-founder of Radical Advocates for Cross-Cultural Education, also known as RACE, which is a frontline education advocacy organization fighting for racial justice in our schools. Mr. Goodrich has guided RACE in forging relationships with statewide and social justice organizations focused on immigrant rights, police accountability, and educational justice that have benefited Waterbury at large. Through his independent research within the fields of philosophy, critical pedagogy, critical race and legal theory, he has been able to develop and co-create legislative, policy-related, and programmatic solutions so that the conceptual gaps between racialized oppression and solutions for racial equity can be closed. He graduated from Western Connecticut State University and has also received training by the Strategic Data Project at Harvard University. Without further ado, let's jump into the conversation. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. If we could start with you, Robbie, that would be great. Thank you, Truth, and, and it's a pleasure to be here. It's really a privilege to be in a space with so many professionals and good people. For me, talking about myself is often very uncomfortable. So I also have lots of social anxiety. So I get very nervous when I have, or I have to speak in public or with groups of people. So, uh, and one of the ways that I sort of uh, squash that is to let everyone know that. It's one of the ways that I can open up myself to them and that they can actually be a receiver of that information. And, and hopefully be able to engage with me and understand that sometimes that people are uncomfortable speaking and communicating in, in a public forum like this. So I am the executive director of a grassroots organization in Waterbury, Connecticut called RACE, and that's short for Radical Advocates for Cross-Cultural Education. We advocate and organize our community to fight for racial equity and social justice in our schools and community. It's something that Dr. Arlene Garcia and uh, Shantae Campbell and I started back in 2015. Now, I, I'm also a parent, I'm an educator, I am a, a very active community member across several social justice issues here in Connecticut. 
which I'm proud of, but I'm also a mentee and a mentor. I'm someone uh, who engages the work of organizing and advocating for racial justice in our schools in a way that reflects my privilege and the, the power dynamics that I walk into many rooms with as a white male. So with that said, the work that we do at RACE is difficult in Waterbury. It's an isolated community and it has less structures in place than Hartford or Bridgeport or New Haven regarding and, and boosting social justice organizing. And I just like to sort of like honor the space that educators take in all of our community, not just the privileged position of being a teacher in a school, but our elders, the indigenous folks, as I said on Quimpiac land, but that everything, if we engage it from a perspective of vulnerability, can be a, a learning experience. Thank you so much, Robbie, for that wonderful response and just, you know, opening the space to recognize that being an educator transcends a formal position. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And I'm going to pass it on to Dr. Q for you to share a little bit with us about yourself and the work that you're currently engaging in. So again, my name is Sandra Quinones. I am new at the University of Connecticut. My new role here is Director of School University Partnerships. And what that means is that I'll be working with schools and districts to cultivate mutually beneficial relationships. Many times schools of education partner with schools to, you know, have their students do their clinical field experiences and student teaching placements. And that's about it. But how can we cultivate a more two way street, right? Where not only are our students in schools, but as faculty and as a school of education, we're also partnering with the schools, listening, offering services, professional development. And here at NEAG, we use a professional development model for the partnerships, but also thinking about what that means post COVID, right? And rebuilding some relationships with the schools that we've historically been partnering with or rebuilding relationships with schools and communities that maybe are right next door to us, like Willimantic, um, but maybe we don't have as many students there or there's a lot of stigma or misperceptions of what it means, right, to be in that space. I'll give you a, a quick story. The other day I was at the Home Depot in Win Wyndham, and I'm new here. So I think Wyndham is getting close to Willimantic, am I correct? And yes, and so I mentioned to the person as I was paying that I am new in the area. And she's like, oh, well, great, you know, congratulations to Connecticut, but be careful, don't drive another five miles down the road because it's a dangerous community. And the person behind me who was gonna pay next was like, yeah, 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 I work in Willimantic, it's awful, it's so dangerous. I, and I thought to myself, are you kidding me? I'm a Puerto Rican woman and you're telling me that the neighborhood that's, you know, predominantly Puerto Rican is, you know, a violent, you know, dangerous community that I shouldn't go to. Hmm. And how does that make me feel? Right. And should I say something back or am I recognizing this as a well-intentioned racism, what we would call like well-intentioned racism? I'm just telling you where to go, where not to go for your safety, but really there's layers there, right? 
and for me as a Puerto Rican woman, how do I navigate that? Or what, you know, what's going on here? So I tell that story, you know, just to let you know where I'm coming from and how I think about, you know, issues of, of race, class, gender, and equity and social justice on a daily basis and how my work at NEAG will be to also cultivate equity-minded, culturally sustaining teachers for all of our schools. Thanks so much to each of you for sharing a bit about yourselves and really how that has shaped perhaps how you approach and engage in the work that you do. As we have shared, the episode, or really the thrust of this episode, is around the role of dialogue. So I'm curious to, before we dig into how we use dialogue, I'm curious for each of you to perhaps define dialogue and how you understand the power of dialogue or, you know, why you might use dialogue. So, Dr. Q, maybe we'll start with you, um, if you don't mind just sharing a bit about how you define dialogue and what you have personally seen as the power of dialogue. Sure, and I've been thinking about this. Dialogue, if you think about it simply, would be like, you know, a conversation maybe between two or more people, and there's an exchange of listening and talking. That's sort of a basic, you know, definition of dialogue. But I think of dialogue in layers and dimensions, like it could be an internal dialogue where you're on your own and you're sort of thinking about things or thinking to, I mean, with yourself almost, right? And having an internal dialogue, or it may be a dialogue with another person or a group of people. So dialogue, it doesn't always have to have more than one person is part of my point there. And in terms of the power of dialogue, I think the power of dialogue resides in the ability and willingness to both listen and hear. Because sometimes we listen, but we're not hearing. Or sometimes we're hearing, but we're not listening, right? And then there's the two-wayness, right? The not only listening and hearing, but then responding. And sometimes we don't get a response, so there's like a short circuit in the dialogue, right? Or a potential dialogue. And sometimes that creates confusion, tension, or just, you know, misunderstanding. So those are some of the things I've been thinking about in terms of how I conceptualize dialogue. And I'll say one more thing if I can. I think of dialogue broadly, just like a literacy scholar. You know, I do sometimes literacy research. And when I talk about a text in my classroom, T-E-X-T, -E right? I don't just think about a book. Yes, a text can be a book, but a text could also be a movie, a song, a video, right? So I think of text broadly, and that's kind of how I feel about dialogue. I like to think about dialogues broadly. Thanks so much for that. Kind of for kind of opening up this understanding that dialogue could have layers and dimensions, that it involves listening, understanding, and responding. And also this idea that, you know, perhaps we could expand the bounds of dialogue and what might that mean. Robbie, in thinking about how you might define dialogue or the power that you believe dialogue can have, do you mind sharing some insight? Thank you, Dr. Q, and thanks for the question. I first want to hold up this ever-present idea that in that is seated inside my soul at this point in my life is that everything that we do 
especially in education, is held up against these white cultural norms, especially communication styles. And that the primary feature of cultural norm, these, this, this white cultural norm is a binary, the person that has the information and the person that needs it. And that how that language, and particularly spoken or written word, are the only ways to transmit dialogue. And what I what I what I hesitate to sort of to seat this conversation is is that that's the only way that we can have dialogue. There are cultural expressions of power that come in the form of art uh, uh, from our ancestors that are non-traditional that often get ignored, and is one of the primary concerns and problems with the way that pedagogy or epistemology in America is supported and brought into the dominant culture here in America. So yes, I, I do believe in, in, in the same ways that Dr. Q does about that dialogue has to be an exchange, but that it just can't be an exchange equally, but it has to be equitably. That means that whether it's an individual or a large group of people, or if it's just two people, there has to be a, an openness, not only to the words that are being transmitted, but the identity of, of those folks and the history of that person. And that's where uh, partnerships, friendships, and significant relationships. At race, we, ha we have this equation that we created early on where we have humility plus authenticity equals trustworthiness. And it's something that we try to base all of our work on, not just as community organizers, but Dr. Garcia and, and my life's work has been about working with educators and social workers across the country to make sure that they can practice culturally competent and sustainable practices in the classroom that lift up and don't suppress the social lives and the actual opportunities that families and children can have if dialogue is actually ever present in a classroom. As you were speaking, something came up for me in my heart and I was thinking of bomba and plena or the, the musical traditions in Puerto Rico where, where Afro-Caribbean traditions where the drummer and the dancer are actually having a conversation and they're in dialogue through the drums and the different beats and then the dancer and how, you know, they play off each other. Right, so that's also sort of another way of thinking about dialogue. So I'm I'm happy that you, you know, challenged us to not just think of a traditional, do dominant sort of mainstream version of the word dialogue. I thank you for that. Yeah, I think that it's important. I, I want to sort of support what Dr. Q is saying. We need to disrupt the smooth functioning of the systems at every level in every conversation, no matter how uncomfortable it is, because that behavior leakage, both negative and positive from a, from a, a cultural or social anthropologist perspective is always happening. So the moment we let that leak into someone else's life or practices, we could indefinitely harm them for a long time. It's the, it's the same conversation that Dr. Tatum has in terms of killing the curiosity of young folks at the age of, you know, the third grade, fourth grade, and once that is killed or stopped within them, the process of learning for them all but ends. 
And I think it's really important that we uh, sort of embrace this uncomfortability that acknowledging white supremacy and white cultural norms brings to us in these spaces, especially for white educators, which I am. Thank you both for sharing your insight. And I'm glad that we're really digging into the power of language because language has historically been used as a form of dominance. And we're pairing that with this conversation around dialogue and saying, okay, let's challenge what we know and let's call out and acknowledge and name that a lot of the ways that we think about dialogue is rooted in whiteness. And how do we open up more ways of knowing? And Dr. Q, you got me really excited when you started talking about, you know, dance, because I do West African dance, and that's the heart and soul of West African dance is that communication between the dancer, your feet and the drum. Absolutely. And, the and, and that coming together. And I think that's really important that we think about these different ways of seeing and different paradigms for communicating. Um, so thank you both for, um, putting that forth and, and really supporting each other around that and expanding our ideas of how we think about communication, that it's not just verbal, but it's artistic. Um, it can be generational. Um, it can be through so many different avenues. So thank you so much for that. And I just wanna move us forward into the next question. So given that this episode is about dialogue, can you tell us a little bit more about how dialogue is used as a, a vehicle for community organizing and cultivating community partnerships? And I would like to start with you, Dr. Q, because you've just started your position here um, at UConn, and that's the heart and soul of what you're doing is creating authentic partnerships with um, various schools in this region or maybe throughout Connecticut. So if you could share a little bit more about your intentions, what you're bringing into this work, that's going to allow you to really lean into the task and challenge of the work ahead. You're right in saying it's, it's, it's leaning in. I love that expression of leaning in to the challenge. Um, you know, being new sort of puts me at the beginner's mind. Um, and really my first step is to listen, right? And to kind of visit, observe, talk to people and listen. I think that will be part of my first phase. Um, and I'm already noticing, you know, tensions, confusions, or, um, you know, areas that can be improved. And so I'm working on ways to navigate <laughs> how to do that strategically and in a way that I'm similar to Robbie, I can, I can get myself in trouble all the time, really fast <laughs> in the sense of like calling things out or and things that need to happen. Right. But, but then when you're new, you also have to sort of listen and observe what the norms are and then choose strategic moments to challenge those norms. Right. And so I'm in that phase and I'm very aware that as a Puerto Rican person, I embody both the colonizer and the colonized or the oppressor and the oppressed simultaneously, I enacted in many ways, right? And so I have to be mindful of my own identities and how they're aligned or sometimes in conflict with the communities that I'm visiting, right? And so part of that takes time to build trust and to sort of establish, you know, communication. And if I could 
And something else that Robbie said earlier reminded me of this in graduate school when I was a PhD student, one of my professors was from the Haudenosaunee turtle tribe. She was an indigenous professor scholar. And in her cultural practices, in terms of dialogue, bringing it back to dialogue, there was, you know, speaking slowly, but then also waiting. There was a pause before the, the other person respond. And for me, that was really difficult and challenging because for me, from my cultural background and perspective, you talk over each other, excitement and sort of energy is high and this pausing and wait time to respond was very challenging for me, but I, obviously out of respect and sort of understanding how she um, expected us to communicate or, or, or it was challenging, right? The norms that we come from or understand, right? In terms of dialogue, I was, you know, I was talking about that with my students today because sometimes too, you have to share with students sort of your own challenges with these topics or your own struggles, your own, discoveries and insights over time. So I wanted to put that out there um, because it came to mind earlier. Thank you for that response. I'm hearing like listening is something that's gonna be really important for you as you step into this role as a liaison, right? Mm -hmm. And um, one who is at UConn, but also creating these partnerships with other schools I'm also hearing that you got to understand the norms of any environment to really start to create authentic dialogue. And in the beginning, you have to be somewhat strategic about things that you choose to lean into. Mm -hmm. And the last thing you said was beautiful as you were talking about this practice mm -hmm. of pausing, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. slowing down, making sure that information is registering, right? When our tendency and our social conditioning, we wanna be right, we wanna get our opinion in, we're afraid that people won't hear us, people will misunderstand us, and it just becomes a lot. <laughs> so, right. um, but, but a beautiful practice is being able to slow down and make sure we're fully understanding what someone's saying. So thank you for, for sharing that and bringing that energy into our time together. And now I'm gonna move over to, to Robbie, and I would love for you to share how um, dialogue shows up in your work. And if you wanna respond to anything that Dr. Q put forth. I do wanna respond to Dr. Q. I think that uh, they bring up several uh, interesting points that um, when you're developing community partnerships, as someone who's been critical uh, and at times hypercritical of schools of education here in Connecticut, including NEAG, where we have actually picked apart their MOUs or their contracts with school districts, and they often reflect the same systemic barriers that the community partnership is brought in to address. And ironic, not ironically, but they ultimately fail before they even begin because they're not couched or created in a way that reflects self-care and wellness, the actual uh, compensation and inclusion of parents and students in the process, 
and then and finally uh, that there's actually a, a place in time where the teachers themselves are not just a target of the evaluations but they are the evaluators of the systems without becoming or going into the crosshairs or in danger to be harmed um, i can share with you some of my professional uh, opinions of some of the community partnership agreements that NEAG and other schools of education in Connecticut have uh, brought to Waterbury uh, at, at a later date. But if you're willing to have a dialogue with me, I, I would certainly be willing to, to do that. I think it's really important to sort of acknowledge that we're we're not trying to just build power in Waterbury through community organizing, and particularly with youth, folks age 15 to 30. We're trying to build a system that is alternative to the municipal government so that the power that these folks already have is acknowledged as not just something that is small, but is large enough to affect the community writ large. And that's really important when I think about dialogue and how it impacts community organizing, it's that there's unacknowledged power and there's acknowledged power. And it sort of sits on that fulcrum of white supremacy. And often the folks that are, they say that are closest to the problems are also closest to the solutions. And so if we're not having uh, an exchange of information that leads to the shifting of power and the places of power to the folks that are forced to endure our school systems for 18, 20 years, then we're actually not removing any of the human or systemic barriers that preserve the status quo. And I think that's really important as we as dialogue grows within the community organizing field around racial equity, it's important that we also have to add these two points, that we're actually trying to wrest away the control of resources and power from the privileged groups that already have it, that are traditionally tasked with solving these issues. That has to be a part of the information and communication stream for us to be successfully addressing racial inequality and equity here in Connecticut. Thank you, Robbie, for bringing in the power dynamics. I have just a quick follow-up question around, can you say a little bit more about what does that dialogue of empowerment look like? Um, are you talking about um, parents? Are you talking about students? How do you cultivate dialogue with those specific areas because um, you said something that was really significant that those that are closest to the problem are often closest to the solution as well. So what does it look like to have these dialogues with so many different types of groups and what are sort of the circumstances and the conditions that allow people to really speak their truth? In, in these situations in terms of their experiences or solutions that they want to bring to the table? So people in power or people with money, when I think about funders or charitable entities that are tasked with sort of servicing people in our communities, and they've, you know, nearly all failed, right? If we look at the circumstances in Waterbury, they're pretty dire. I won't bore you with the quantitative, but it's about shifting that mechanism to the qualitative so the lived experiences of folks in neighborhood communities they already have the ability to survive 
and to use those same skills if given access to resources, whether that's a, a, a person, whether that's money, whether that's a piece of technology that they traditionally wouldn't have had access to is just enough in, in many instances for them to, to take the power and control uh, or even rearrange the sequence of how change happens so that it fits their needs first and and not the people at the top of the system it's inverting the triangle and it's it's about not spreading the resources thinly but concentrating them in an equitable way to the to the folks who have not had access to them it's not about their inability to be successful or not having the skills or like going into the community and teaching soft skills to people, which is insanely racist, but it's about just saying, here, this is what we have to share with you. Take it. And if you need help, we'll be there to support you. That's the exchange that needs to happen. And that's where if you actually follow through with that, you'll actually become an authentic and trustworthy figure to them just as if there was their abuela or their auntie or uncle or the elder in the church. You talk about Pentecostal uh, pedagogy, right? And Chris, Dr. Chris Edmund says, go into the church to find out how you should be interacting with black students. Well, if, if you're not willing to go do that, maybe you shouldn't be in the classroom with black children. And I, I think that's v very evident in community organizing as well, where you have lots of powerful white community organizers or advocacy groups that control the cycle of policymaking that excludes writ large black and brown and queer communities here in Connecticut. And so, and they're afraid to switch the power dynamic mm -hmm. because their identities are wrapped up in it and their financial welfare is as well. And we're trying not to recreate that here at race. I agree with that, Robbie. And would you say, if I may ask a question, like what I heard you saying too is challenging who's at the table to begin with, right? Whether in in these uh, MOUs or you know, are we are we including families, caregivers, youth, um, the very folks, right? That are like you said, are involved in the process and know a lot about the process. Are we even um, including them at the table? That's what I also hear. And, and and sometimes people are not willing to put them at, you know, listen or put them at the table because of those power and control dynamics. It is uh, our advocacy, which is led by students and youth here in Waterbury regarding the American Rescue Plan funding had two primary components. One, let's give all the 2020 and 2021 graduates who suffered the pandemic. College scholarships up to $5,000. Then. We, the, the students came up with the idea, our parents need to be compensated for being involved in school governance councils. So let's give a thousand parents $2,500 over the next three years so that they can participate in good faith in that process. And we heard crickets because that threatens the very stability of the school system. Robbie, thanks for that really tangible kind of like example of, you know, perhaps where where conflict is right or in in the disruption of these smoothly functioning systems we might hit a roadblock uh, and i appreciate you for that thought about the job being to disrupt smoothly functioning systems really an effort to build an alternative system so kind of going off of that and thinking about the scenario that you just laid out perhaps you can share or dr q in your experience how might you you know 
when encountering a conflict or something that really calls into question the smooth functioning of systems, use dialogic principles to promote equitable practice? You know, how have you seen that work when really encountering conflict with others and perhaps, you know, with folks who might not see the value in dialogue? What's coming up for me is, and, and this is some work I had done in Pittsburgh, is, is um, I forgot the, the term used for the type of dialogues, but the democratic principles and in, in dialogues in, you know, for example, go into a school community that's having a lot of racial tensions and you have multiple stakeholders or multiple um, folks who are within the school system, including families, teachers, staff, youth, sit in a circle. And and bring up some of their experiences and listen to each other. They're, you know, it's uncomfortable, but it's ne- it's a necessary part of the process. Although you know, sometimes we don't feel safe in the in, in those circles, right? So just because you're sitting in a circle doesn't mean that you're all of a sudden you know safe now. But I've been in in situations where I'm facilitating conversations in in schools where there's there are a lot of racial tension and and sort of like right we're brought in as the trained facilitators to engage the multiple stakeholders in the process i'm not going to say that i i was successful or that the group was successful but like because it's not really about that it's more about you know thinking about the process but that's what's coming up for me i'm not sure if that's answering your question but I do have some experience with that, um, and I'm looking forward to hearing Robbie's response. <laughs> I think that this is a, a complex process, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that it takes a lot of tenderness. But Dr. Garcia and I, uh, and, and, and I'll, I'll speak to, to our experience working together with educators, and particularly non-instructional staff, is that we take or have taken large groups of school psychologists and social workers and counselors and created racialized affinity groups within these training cohorts and say, you're gonna go work with the you know, all the white people over here, all the people that identify as black over here, all the Latinx or Hispanic folks, and, and we're gonna do the same exercise and we're gonna each share out the solution or the dilemmas or, or, or shared problems that we come out of in this exercise. Now, that is a process of uh, that immediately creates risk for the people who are who are white, and uh, as well as for the people who, who who are not. And to see how the folks react within those affinity groups and what types of presentations they produce coming out of it is just not a learning experience for their colleagues, but it is for us as facilitators. Mm. That creates a dialogue that's beyond words. It sees the cultural expressions and the way that folks are addressing themselves and their colleagues in, 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 an, important, uh, in an important process. Within community organizing, something that we try not to do is try to have community forums or charrettes. What we try to do is have what we call advocacy walks. Is that we we actually prepare stuff that we know that folks are experiencing and put them in small groups together and have them go and 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 address not only the problems or solutions in an open way 
and we walk with them through this process. And so that they can have a physical break from sitting down and listening mm -hmm. and actually start not just to engage the material, but each other. And that's where we see the real creativity and the imagination that comes from true dialogue uh, come to the forefront and which is what we actually need to address these systemic issues or social issues that are in all our communities. Thank you too so much um, for sharing that. And as we wrap up our time here today, I would love for you all to share some concluding words on just how do we move forward? What advice do you have for youth community organizers, grassroots organizations, and teachers who want to engage in this work in terms of how they can use dialogue to advance equity and social justice? First and foremost, if you want to get involved with the work that our youth and students are doing in Waterbury, I need you all to take out your phones and text R-A-C-C-E to 52886. Can you repeat that one more time? Yep. Text RACE, R-A-C-C-E, to 52886. Now, this is an application that shows how we're reaching young people. They don't want to sit at their computer and they don't want to sit on the phone talking to you. They want to text to you. They want to communicate with you through social media. So this is an advocacy tool that we've started using that puts their cell phones and the way that they primarily communicate with their friends and their family at the center. Yeah, click the link and sign up. At the puts them at the center of advocacy right from their cell phone which is a really important part that we're creating dialogue with them without actually having to have a traditional one-on-one -on -one with them, which they don't want to have. And many of us didn't want to have during the pandemic. So do that, right? Find ways to communicate with people that aren't traditional and meet them where they are. That's really important. So, and, and the other part of this is, is to, to, to ensure that we're sustaining ourselves, that we, that we always incorporate therapy as a general principle, Arlene and myself don't trust people who don't actively engage in therapy or have in the past and don't incorporate some sort of wellness practices or self-care at the top of all of their work. It's extremely important so that we can sustain this work of fighting these systems of oppression without having to risk our health or our family's welfare. And if we don't take time to do that, guess what's going to happen? We're going to get squashed because the right. system is just too heavy. And that, that we stay mobile because the system can speed up and slow down at any particular time. And that if we don't take the time to build deep, meaningful relationships with people by having deep, meaningful dialogue, then we're never going to be able to combat these systemic forms of, of oppression and violence, both structural, you know, systemic, right, subjective and objective. So I want to, to, to let folks know that they can get involved just by simply texting to us but also that we're willing to sit down and work with your organization and find a way to partner and to support each other's work, which is primarily the way that race has come to the top of so many issues around the school to prison pipeline, teacher mm -hmm. diversity, and uh, student outcomes here in Connecticut, because Waterbury sits at ground zero for the school to prison pipeline, as well as for school performance issues for students of color. I'd just like to thank you all for having me today, and I'm looking forward to hear how Dr. Q wraps us up. <laughs> Excellent. I love what you said, you know, and again, you know, when you're new here, you, you also have that challenge, right, of learning 
um, how things function, but there's also, you know, I love the fact that, that it's a text and you, you found new ways of interacting and being, you know, by listening, right, to young people and how they wanted to go about it, right? So that's really important work. And the self-care and therapy is super important. And self-care is important because this is exhausting work. It's very tiring work. Um, but we have to find ways to replenish. So I'm sort of feeding off of what Robbie said. And the other thing that's coming to mind in terms of wrapping up is humility. You know, we talk in the literature about humility, but, you know, eh, what, what does that mean? Or resilience, a word that's been thrown around and, and, and very problematic and, and, and even mindfulness, right? Oh, let's just start doing mindfulness meditation in schools and that'll solve the problem. No, you're just trying to, you know, have them deal with the stress better and, and not deal with the toxic, you know, the toxic, you know, the toxic levels and the hostilities just rising. You know, doing a one minute breathing technique is helpful, but it doesn't solve the problem, right? And so, <laughs> so again, being critical, aware, um, and, and risking, um, being humble, but also uh, being a catalyst for for discomfort. I don't know why that's just coming to mind. So thank you for having us. Thank you for wrapping us up, Dr. Q, and um, and talking about humility and a catalyst for discomfort. Um, yes, this work is not for the comfortable, right? Um, we're talking about unsettling and disrupting systems that we have taken for granted for being normal and how do we interrogate the way that we communicate in our dialogue to understand our culture and the way that we've been influenced and shaped by our culture so once again i want to thank you all for your time and your wisdom and i'm going to turn it over to to omar to close us out sounds wonderful thank you truth danielle dr q robbie thank thank you all so so much for for joining us in this important and relevant conversation regarding community organizing and community building um i i can't express like enough how much we appreciate your vulnerability your wisdom and also for sharing such multi-layered elements that are involved in cultivating non-traditional ways of building bridges of dialogue with our community uh, whether it's implementing acts of listening, humility, and acknowledging that just the beautiful exchanges of information between the members of our community, you know, it's just so important that, and, and I think all of us are collectively grateful that you're actively working to dismantle systems of power that are part of the status quo. And I just personally uh, want to commend you both for your continued work in this movement and the strategies that you implement to involve members of the community, uh, as you mentioned, Robbie, that are closest to the problem in order to develop tangible solutions towards dismantling systemic oppression to achieve our collective goals. So just thank you so, so much and best of luck uh, with all of your work. We, we're behind you and you know, we're, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a collective force that, that helps us move forward. So, so thank you once again. As always, we're thankful for the support from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut, because it takes a village and it takes heart.